welcome, this is the Trial Advocates Playbook and I'm Craig McKenzie. On the show today we have a special guest, Mr Michael Mansfield QC, a legend in the legal world and as far as criminal law, human rights and civil liberties are concerned, he is probably the biggest household name there is in those fields. From humble beginnings, Michael managed to break into the legal profession and in a career spanning more than 50 years, he's been involved in some of the most notable and famous cases to go through the courts. There are so many important cases that Michael has been involved in that there's just not enough time to list them all in this introduction. But if you are interested in learning more, I will post a link to Michael's book, which is called Memoirs of a Radical Lawyer. It's well worth a read. There's also Michael's Chambers website, which is nexuschambers.com. There's even a Wikipedia page dedicated to Mr. Michael Mansfield QC that has a lot of interesting information about the cases that he's been involved in. Michael has been described by the directories as the king of human rights work and as a leading silk in civil liberties and human rights. It's a great honour and privilege to have you on the show, Michael. Welcome. What a wonderful career you've had, Michael. I suppose my first question is that if you could go back in time to the night before your very first jury trial and give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be? Uh, become a drummer. <laughs> I mean, I remember the. I mean, I remember the first case, and in a sense, the nerves never leave you. They're quite important. Because uh, adrenaline flowing keeps you on your toes, um, makes you alert, and, re- and also you don't take anything for granted. I think that's the most important thing is just never, never, never assume anything. That yeah. you know, for example, I know people you know look at juries and think, oh well, we've got a good one there, and it'll be all right, or the judge, or whatever. You 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 make assessments, and I've found that you can be actually seriously wrong in the way you assess how things are going, how it's being received, particularly when you're speaking to audiences, unlike most people where you have an audience feedback. You don't have any feedback with a jury. I mean, they may look at you, and the ones that smile are probably thinking the opposite, and the ones who are asleep are probably with you. There's no way of knowing. So I've I've learned severely to be very, very cautious uh, about that and, and just have to make an assessment internally of what you think is important and if you've worked out what you think is important stick to it yeah well brilliant and i i remember um i heard you on a another podcast show talking about your your very first cross-examination of a, of a police officer i think it was an old converted um church that was was here in the case and it was it was pretty amusing that 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 story um with regards to what happened in the the, the witness box, do you recall that? Uh, yeah, yeah, I certainly do. It was um, it was either the first or 
very close to being the first yeah. uh, criminal trial that I got involved in. And it was in South London. Uh, and it was in a court that I think is no longer there in a part of South London called Gypsy Hill. Mm-hmm. Sort of Victorian backwater, really, I suppose. Um, yeah. And therefore, you know, it, it was a converted because a lot of converted buildings now. It was a converted church hall, non-conformist, so that the judge sat roughly where the altar is, was. The pulpit was the witness box. The jury sat in in pews, uh, and we also, that is council, sat in in pew-like rows, as it were. So it's very rudimentary, and it was a a case that involved... um, uh, a burglary in Elephant and Castle of a chemist shop. And it were, uh, uh, there were two defendants. Uh, I think they were Irish. I can't remember. It doesn't really matter what mm-hmm. nationality they were. And because the, the, the point was that I hadn't really conducted a cross-examination ever. And um, so when my turn came to cross-examine this police officer, um, I did, and I sort of, I didn't deliberately turn my back on him, but it was a sort of instinctive thing because I've been watching too much television. Perry Mason, which probably your listeners will hardly have heard of, but um, there were lots of legal series at that time, and that was one of them. And there was another one in which I noticed that often the um, American counsel, anyway, often didn't face the witness but would face the jury so i thought well that, that sounds reasonable to me that it's quite difficult for a witness to answer questions being fired over somebody's left shoulder and you only see their back so um anyway so i started off and i thought well because i, I sort of getting my finding my feet i sort of asked rather naff basic questions like did i hear your name correctly and oh by the way do you happen to have your pocketbook with you i mean so basic you kind of throw up now when you think about it Uh, anyway um but what struck me is even more of that having asked these rather basic questions to it the answer would bound to be a dismissive my name is yes and all the rest of it uh there was no answer to the first question second question and the third question was getting more interesting you know and uh, how how he manages to remember certain things yeah And, and i noticed that the jury were kind of well some of them smirking or, or, or smiling and they couldn't you know and i thought i better turn around i turned around and the witness box the pulpit was vacant <laughs> and i thought huh. the judge was even though it was the morning not not that overwhelmed with the cross-examination i don't blame him and he was half asleep and he sort of peered over his past day in the days that they wore those glasses on the end of his nose and looked over the top and, you know, and, and, and sort of exploded about, where, well, where is this witness? And um, the, the usher, a woman, had gone outside to have a cigarette, quite right, too. So she was called back in. She didn't know. She said, I haven't seen him. And so um, the jury were gesticulating towards the witness box. So the usher went towards the pulpit, up the steps, opened the door, which pulpits have, and there, collapsed on the floor of the pulpit witness box, was this officer. And the next thing I knew, you know, was that a St. John's ambulance and a stretcher were coming in to carry him out. And I thought, oh, what have I done? First cross-examination, <laughs> the witness collapses. Well, I don't know. Anyway, 
the court inspector came up and said, you know, looking at me as some kind of young whippersnapper, now don't you get above yourself. He's been on night duty and he hasn't had any food. So basically, um, it was a fairly dramatic start, but it had nothing to do with my questions or style or anything, but at least it gave me a chance of breathing space. Yeah. Oh, so it's, it's a brilliant um, story, and I'm sure there's a, a lesson to be learned there um, somewhere. Michael, have you read any books that you would say have greatly influenced your life? And, and if so, what's your, what's your favourite and why? Ah, goodness. Well, I suppose the apocryphal book, which I'm a great lover of film, to be honest, and um, Mm -hmm. I think film has influenced me far more, but there was a book arising out of a film, so I did it the other way around. I didn't read the book and then see the film. I saw the film and then read the book. Um, It's very old now, black and white, To Kill a Mockingbird, and yeah. uh, the author, I think, has just brought out a couple of years ago, and, or at least another book has been found that she wrote. Anyway, the the film starring Gregory Peck and mm-hmm. how he rose to an occasion and dealt with bigotry <clears throat> and a lot of a disapproval within his, you know, with his own family for, for for doing what he was doing. And I just thought that this was a very good eulogy in a way to the independence or the possible and potential independence for lawyers who are wanting to defend principles as well as individuals because often they go together and hopefully they will continue to do so that's that was the one i think what gave me prime uh, inspiration however Mm -hmm. um there were two there were two other one's a book and one's a film yeah. <clears throat> One is a book by Ludwig Kennedy, unfortunately now deceased, but I did get to meet him and get to know him before he died, fortunately, because he was a powerful, independent, investigative journalist yeah. who, who was very interested in cases and the iniquities of the law. And in particular, a book about Timothy Emmons, a young man who was wrongly uh, accused and wrongly executed right. um, for... <clears throat> murders carried out by Dr. Christie. So it's a famous case now. Um, Timothy Evans. And the book, when I read it, I was so, again, horrified by what had happened to Mr. Evans and the trial and the struggle to clear his name afterwards that I thought, you know, I thought of Ludwig Kennedy's stand that he took because, I mean, in those days, um, this was notorious crime, so you know why, why would somebody like that want to get involved in it? But he got involved in it because the principles of yeah. due process hadn't been pursued, and, and uh, so I think that 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 particular book also, and of course that's been made into a film. I read the book first on this one, yeah. and then I think it's David Attenborough was in it um, in in the original film playing Doctor Christie. I think so. I, I think those two, and then. There's a whole film series which I recommend to anybody who can get hold of it, an American series which was coincident with the advent of television in my household because we were a long time getting it. And when it came, of course, you know, it was uh, a family outing to the living room to watch it. And uh, sometimes I had to go to somebody else's house because we we didn't have it on. But um, it was a series called The Defenders where it was – um 
Edward G. Robinson, I think, starred in it, and it was him plus one other, mm-hmm. were represent well a, a sort of family law business which he built on the basis of taking on uh, cases that were extremely un- he didn't do it because they're unpopular but they were unpopular cases but yeah. had social issues they weren't all criminal but most of them were yeah. and the interesting thing about the series which of course i don't know that do it now but you, you know he it showed that you you didn't often win you often lost and what was the point? And the point that was constantly made in the series, through the series, was that it's very important, one, to provide a voice, two, that the voice that you provide for people who would otherwise not be heard is one of challenge to whatever the situation is. Because and we're le- that's very important these days where you have a sort of elected dict- dictatorship, in my view. And it is very important for the community to realise that you, in these circumstances, you mustn't roll over with your legs in the air and you mustn't sort of give up and you must say it's very difficult, especially yeah. now under COVID and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. But in my view, which is, well, I'm giving a plug to it because it happened yesterday. Um, I've just completed one of the things I'm doing and have been doing this year is chairing an independent inquiry into the government handling of COVID. Yeah. It's called the People's COVID Inquiry. And we produced a report, a really very fine report. I I played a small part in this by being the chair, and I was privileged to do it. But that was an uh, an exercise in providing an opposite view, not being provided by government at the moment, and with no immediate prospect of it. We we had the hearings. Uh, between February and August, um, they were online. Uh, well, uh, uh, they weren't in person. And yeah. so they were remotely conducted. And um, all the evidence has been transcribed. If you go to keep our national health public, they were the campaign behind it. They've yeah. got a website, keep our national health public. And you'll read all about it. You can actually see examples of the hearings and over 50 different witnesses, a lot of ordinary citizens that's what it was meant to be in helping the ordinary citizen as well as a lot of academics a lot of medics and i sat with a panel of experts to analyze the evidence and then between the end of the hearings which was the beginning of july and what day we friday yeah uh, and um wednesday wednesday the first of december this week the report was finally published and it is a massive undertaking it's a in a, you know, gargantuan effort by a collective of voluntary people yeah. who just sat down and said the truth has to be told. So we've got on record, you know, I think that the, the only record of the background to this pandemic and the development of the pandemic and how government has responded, or rather, in our view, not responded in the way it should. So it's um, published on that website. And I think you, I'm not sure whether they're charging for the report. It's huge, but it's well worth reading and incredibly well put together. So it's worth a read. If you're bothered about the COVID situation, if you're bothered about Boris's knee-jerk reactions to almost everything, including he's going to another party this tomorrow or something. You know, if if you're interested in current politics and the possibility of taking on government, then read the report. It's well worth checking out the website, saveournhs.com. The report referred to can be downloaded 
on the site peoplescovidinquiry.com. I'll post a link on my LinkedIn feed. I'll also stick it on Instagram and Twitter, but it can be found at peoplescovidinquiry.com. Sounds like you've been extremely busy recently. Um, ne- next question. Uh, last five years, in the last five years, what new belief or behaviour or habit has most improved your life? But is there any new, new belief that you can think um, Well, I I can interpret the question in any way yeah. I want. Um, I mean, if, if it's professionally, I think it's... I'm not saying it's not happened before, but, but I think it, the need has increased to um, work as people have improved it in the sense that, for example, I'm working on the Grenfell Inquiry and in with regard to that, there is a, a really very fine body of young lawyers, much younger than me. Well, I think everybody's younger than me now. I'm 80 this autumn, so oh, that's not difficult, is it? Um, and the young lawyers have a spirit, indomitable spirit, in fact, committed to the law, wanting to make a difference within the context of this that inquiry, which is a judicial public inquiry yeah. under the Inquiries Act. And I think uh, melding, I, I mean, I'm not alone in doing it, but I mean, working in a, a big team for a big purpose, yeah. which has gradually come to be. I mean, I think I first started doing cases of this kind in the 1990s. So I've been doing it a while, but the, the, the need has got greater as the decades have passed. And so I think it, it, it's working with the younger generation. Actually, it's important for me because I've got to keep my feet on the ground a bit uh, while I still can. And I think personally as well, family life, I, I've got married admittedly for the third time, but I have got married within the last few years. And that's made a big difference as well because, you know, you need support on all fronts. Um, yeah. So for me, it's always about people, nearly always. I mean, I haven't, I mean, I could talk about technology, but I'm not a technocrat. And um, I'm very unhappy about the advent of so much technology. I appreciate, you know, in a sense, it produces a global village in which we can contact anybody in the world. But there are such a lot of such a lot of abuse, as far as I can see, when people reduce to uh, pieces emotionally, psychologically um, by what goes on. I mean, I don't participate in social media for that reason. But although there are distinct advantages, that's not the thing I don't think that's made the difference to my life. It is, in fact, meeting other people who together you bond with and uh, can work on what is happening now. I tend to want to live in the present, not the past, and actually not the future either. Just to, you know, if I can survive today, that's great. That's how I look at it. And talking about technology um i think the especially the criminal justice system is a few years behind other areas but um there has been a move towards digital working certainly in courts with the 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 dcs and this new common platform have you embraced digital working as opposed to well uh, before you go to court with (laughs) i just say 
I wouldn't use the word embrace. <laughs> I've accommodated. Uh, it sounds a bit, you know, uh, a bit rather grand way to put it. But, you know, I've got to get to grips with it, which I have tried with a lot of help from other people. Yeah. Um, and, and a lot of patience from other people while I get it wrong. And, um, I mean, I, I've sort of, I think it is important to be up to date if you can be. And so uh, I've got, for example, on the desk, I've got a couple of screens. The one I'm using at the moment is the latest iPad. So I can, I only use iPads. I don't use a, a laptop. And um, again, I think it's to do with the sort of direct contact. And um, I've, so I've got an iPad and I've got an Android tablet as well. So I can watch one thing and participate in another. And obviously I've got a mobile phone as well, which comes on top with a whole load of apps on that. Yeah. But basically my, my concern is that whilst you're getting greater connectivity, mm -hmm. it is also dividing, isolating. Yeah. And although, you know, somebody who's living alone might enjoy having either, well, obviously a television, but having some means of communicating with their family in Timbuktu, that, that is important, but the problem is discipline and regulation to ensure that uh, it doesn't obsess, it doesn't become the dominant feature in your life. And I'm trying to resist that, but it's very difficult since uh, a lot of cases only happen if they are, well, they're calling them hybrid, in other words, partly remote. Um, mm -hmm. But on the other hand, for me, uh, hearing is best conducted in person, but that yeah. is risky. I mean, I do it, but not too regularly because of the precautions that have to be taken. So I think embrace is the wrong word, but I, have, I haven't I have run away from it. Uh, certainly not. I think it's important that I should know what's going on and how to do it if I need to. Yeah. So that's that's the current position. Things may change, of course. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give to a graduate that wishes to become a criminal lawyer? either solicitor or barrister? Uh, uh, yeah. Well, I think my advice is the same as it's always been. This may surprise people. Um, the first thing is you, you have to be sure, as sure as is humanly possible, that this yeah. is what you want to do. And in my case, obviously, I was propelled into it. Not I, I, I'm not from a legal family. Uh, my father and his father and his father before that, so grandfather stretched back all railways, all work at railwaymen, and it was expected that I would be one. Yeah. And I'm fond of the railways, except HS2. But um, <laughs> I, I, I watched, well, I've mentioned it already, the Defenders, but yeah. I watched a lot of legal programs and I just thought, I would like to do that. I would like to investigate and represent people who are, if you like, like representing a class issue, I don't mean class in the social sense, but a class of topic, yeah. um, which is important. Uh, for example, it may be to do with abortion, which is a case going on in the States at the moment, or, or it may be something else. It may be a straight robbery like, you know, the ones that are obvious. Um, yeah. So I think you have to know that that's what you want to do. And I did know that. And the reason I say I go back to that is that when I started, there was little or no legal aid. And there were little, very few opportunities, certainly for somebody like myself, even though 
I've got a public school background. I'm sort of, I think in those days, regarded as sort of lower middle class sort of background. And, you know, there's a, the, the bar's very good or was very good at diagnosing where you've come from in terms of where you might be going. So I had it against me. The odds were against me that I'd never get a pupillage. I'd never find a set of chambers. I probably wouldn't pass the exams because I did do a law degree. I did philosophy. Yeah. So it was all against me. I just said, look, you, that's the first thing. Absolutely, you know, as it were, forage everywhere until you're quite sure there's nothing else on the planet that you want to do. Yeah. Because without that passion, you probably won't last more than a week <laughs> because the odds stack up the moment you start. I, this applies to lots of jobs yeah. uh, these days. And, and, and at the moment when everything's so... Uh, insecure and unpredictable it's understandable that you know it's even worse the pressures are worse yeah. but the advice would still be the same because we do need um the, the country needs the society needs a strong independent fearless bar it needs solicitors as well obviously but i'm talking this above yeah. the bar in a way and i think there's a there's a, a mad rush for the exit at the moment yeah. There's a backlog of cases. Uh, there's been cuts in legal aid. It's very, very difficult for people, you know, middle ranking to, it's all right for me, they'll all say, but for the middle rankers and the junior people, yeah. making a living is really tricky. And I think the bar the other day came up with the figures, which they've done this before, that most barras, barristers earn less per hour than, the, than plumbers. Now, I have nothing against plumbers at all, and they are quite entitled to earn whatever they do earn. But um, I, I think that, you know, there is this anxiety that, that the bar doesn't pay. It hasn't got the attraction that it once had. It's, uh, I, I don't think it's not sort of, it hasn't got that kudos that it once had. So if you're wanting to do it, you have to want to do it because you have, dare I say it, some kind of vision or mission that you want to accomplish and you feel that the bar will give you that opportunity. And anything less than that, forget it. Do you have any unusual habits or, or rituals? <laughs> you think, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you do, but uh, whether you want to tell me. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I'm, I'm fairly, I get very irritated by ill order. In other words, because I work off paper a lot, I haven't yet said that, but I do. Yeah, I'm I'm a lateral thinker, so uh, that means that I'm going from one side to the other, which means I do like books and I like paper briefs, so that I can look back or forward. I yeah. do not like the screen, and I find that um, you know my eyesight is being affected adversely by looking at too much screen. Mm -hmm. And so, therefore, to come back to your point, I, I, I like to know where everything is so that I can put my finger on it when I'm on my feet yeah. in, in a flash second because I don't speak from scripts. I have trigger notes. Yeah. And um, because I learned this the hard way at university that, you know, reading a speech is just so unimpressive. Mm -hmm. I don't mean in a derogatory sense. It's just that, the, the the audience are not captivated because 
they see it as though, you know, somebody else is reading a book to them. Well, unless it's a very captivating book, yeah. you're not going to stay awake. Yeah. Though I find I've got to speak uh, a sort of at, almost extemporize. And I have this extraordinary relationship with my brain. Not only is it can't find where it is, but I don't know when I stand up. People say, how can you say that? I don't know what's going to come out. <laughs> I don't know. I, if I've done the work, I know that it's stored and that the brain's going to sort it out. And, <clears throat> and I set off, and I, uh, I say this many times, I feel when I'm speaking that my brain's, as it were, doing a circle. It's gone off to the right, round the audience, or whatever the audience is. And I'm still back on the podium or wherever. And I'm thinking, God, What's it saying? Oh, I didn't know I was going to do that there. <laughs> and so gradually the brain works its way all the way around. And they said, the extraordinary thing is you come back to the topic. I said, no, I don't. The brain does. <laughs> and it's really got a momentum of its own. But it doesn't happen without a bit of help. Obviously, I've got to have been doing a lot of thinking and sorting and all the rest of it. So it comes back to really having um, a marshaled thoughts and material and information and then allowing the brain freedom. Mm -hmm. And that's what I do. So I, if that's a habit, I suppose that's a habit. Um, <laughs> thinking, do I have any other ones? Well, when I was a little more agile, you know, I used to like a lot, a lot of cycling to work and things like that, but I can't do that anymore. <laughs> um, uh, in fact, I'm nowhere near a court where I'm living. So basically, uh, it's... The main the main habit is organization and and, mm -hmm. and having uh, i suppose the other thing is I, I just love felt pens and colors so the only way because i was brought up with cartoons and i like cartoons a lot it is yeah. i like to look at a page and see all the colors and think well everything in red is usually usually but not always um you know a hot prosecution witness blue is for the police green is for the defendant yellow is for forensic science Anyway, there you are. That's a, that's another habit of mine. In other words, I like kaleidoscopic colour. Yeah. <laughs> if you ever feel overwhelmed or, or unfocused, what do you do or what questions do you ask yourself to overcome that feeling? Um, well, I yes. I mean, there are two things I do, I suppose. is One, I think I have to have, I call it critical thinking or lateral thinking. You've got to be in a position to question yourself and say, have I got this wrong? Yeah. And because you're in front of a tribunal often mm. and an audience that comes to a different conclusion, you can't automatically think you're right. You, you may be right, but you've got to go back over everything and say, I wonder if I got this wrong. You've got to be you know, you've got to be humble about this, you know, the fact that you're doing a profession doesn't mean to say you do get it right. So I think the first thing is self-questioning, and I do a lot of that. Um, and I think that, that that progresses you the moment you're doing, you're thinking analytically uh, about what you do. And I think the result is a more, you know, fluent situation. Yeah. I think that's the main, one of the main 
things that I employ uh, in terms of an approach to all sorts of things, because I don't just do cases. I mean, I speak on all sorts of topics and I get interviewed about all sorts of things. Yeah. And the fact is you do have to prepare. Yeah. Everybody says it's effortless. Well, it's not. The brain will take over, but you've got to, as it were, pave the way, provided the preparation, yeah. and be fairly single-minded about it. Mm-hmm. Michael, what's your top advocacy tips? Oh, I, th- I think... Uh, well, I had to say this the other day to some others uh, who I was speaking with. The first thing is timing mm-hmm. you know it's very very important that you don't garble what you've got to say people get so anxious that they not only read what they want to say but they also speed read it's so fast you know i work on the basis that uh, a re- an audience will probably only be able in 20 minutes to take in a couple of points a couple of points in 20 minutes Right. Therefore, you've got to pick the ones that matter to you yeah. and and present the two points, maybe in a number of different ways to ensure that you've got them across. But do not try and say, oh, God, I've got so much to, you know, to get through in this time. And they condense it and then they, they speak even faster than they, you know, use hieroglyph shortened version. It doesn't work. So time is extremely important so that somebody's got it. Yeah. Secondly, I think it's very important for a receptive audience to, or to, to make a receptive audience, it is to be able to engage them with a story, an anecdote. It might, might be funny, it might not, I don't know. Yeah. Um, judges, I think, well, once they realised that I wasn't going to do anything ridiculous and some of, some of the stories were not bad, they sort of listened and laughed. But I think you, you've got to have, an account that you can give to somebody else that gets them gets them to the point yeah. and but does it in a way that's why comedians are so wonderful are the good ones anyway is that they can talk about a very important topic but do it in such a way that you don't realize that you're laughing about something that's actually deadly serious yeah. so I, I can i can give an i'll shorten this but i won't garble it. it this is one i used i think i put it in the memoirs i'm not sure it's difficult to write it, but speak it you can. It's a, it's a story about circumstantial evidence. And I, I say to the jury, well, if you've got a dog, if you've got a retriever, you'll follow this all right. And I said, it's a Saturday morning and you're sitting down possibly to read a newspaper or have your Weetabix or whatever. And the neighbor calls around and says, hey, look, um, I'm going away for the weekend. Can you keep an eye on my house? So you say, yeah, sure, sure, flat or wherever you are. It has to have a garden or outdoor space to make this one work. And so the owner of the retriever returns to his Weetabix newspaper and suddenly realises that his retriever dog isn't in the house anymore, isn't with him. And he looks over his neighbour's fence and he sees the retriever in the neighbour's garden. But not only that, the retriever has got the neighbour's rabbit in his jaws and shaking it. Then he thinks, ah, oh, he's got the keys to the neighbour's house. So he rushes round, gets the dog, and the rabbit's dead. He thinks, oh, my God, what am I going to do? So he takes the rabbit into his house, 
his own house, puts it in the bath, gives it a shower, washes off the dirt, fluffs it up, takes it back, puts it in the hutch, propped up. So that's on the Saturday. On the Sunday night, he hears the neighbour returning, banging doors and all the rest of it. And he hears the neighbour go down the garden. Thinks, oh my, here we go, here we go. And then he hears rushing from the neighbor's house to his own, knocking on the front door, goes to the front door, and there he is, looking, you know, completely angered and upset. You know, and so he asks sort of questions like, Have you been here all weekend? Yes. Did you see anything unusual? Well, no, nothing much. No, no. Are you quite sure you haven't seen anything? And, and he sees this man rocking with anger he said, and, 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 and upset and all the rest of it. And he said, Well, this uh, well how shall i he said well let me tell you this when i left yesterday morning and asked you to look after the house the rabbit had already died and i buried it in the garden and now it's sitting in its hutch how did this happen and so <laughs> at this point you know the penny's dropping with the jury that what you're or if it's a jury um that really, it's it again, you see a set of circumstances and you immediately assume things, probably in some occasions quite naturally and quite rightly. However, before you do think drastic like replacing the rabbit, uh, you, you've got to look at it much more carefully and not assume that a retriever has necessarily killed the rabbit as opposed to just doing its normal task of retrieving the rabbit anyway that's the sort of thing i think yeah you know somebody will be listening to that at least one out of the 12 people on the jury and they'll remember it as well it's uh yeah, yeah that's a good one um do you have any sort of pet peeves things that you you think advocates shouldn't do that perhaps the you commonly see advocates doing in court Oh, I see. Things they shouldn't do. Well, yeah. I, I think they, they've got to avoid being arrogant, which is very, you know, some barristers at the bar do give off a, a, a sort of aura of arrogance. And I think you've got, you've got to not give it, even if you're not actually arrogant, but you must ensure that you don't appear to be mm-hmm. and that you know better and all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, and I and I think sort of in if you overindulge your audience too much uh, and condescend, I think that's something else you've got to be careful of. Mm-hmm. And and I think it's um, using language, which is why I said telling a story is uh, one way of overcoming this. It's using the language of the law too much. And of course, there are there's a lot of in house material and phrases that are used you know ipso facto and all this kind of thing well that's all very well you know for those of us who are used to the terms that come up but you know to actually use it in a speech or use it um certainly with a lay audience i'm not sure that that's uh terribly beneficial but i i think it, it, it you know it is being careful about how how you express and how you behave in court yeah. Juries, uh, particularly, uh, watch very carefully to see how you relate to people, mm-hmm. whether you are a bit dismissive or not, or inclusive. All sorts of things they watch very, very carefully. Um, so I think you know you you you. Well, you have to be yourself. You can't be somebody else. But one hopes that you've got a an affable, accessible nature. Let's put it like that. Yeah.
from your your own experience, what do you believe separates the good advocates from the great advocates? How do you get to that next level? Um, well, I think, yes, I mean, we're dealing with this in the realm of the law and the courts and tribunals and things. Because there's there's a different set of criteria if you're wanting to advocate or be an advocate in the political arena, you need a different range of talents. Um, at the at the bar and in you know in the context of the law, mm-hmm. you move from being good to being great, actually imperceptibly. In other words, if if you've maintained a consistency, yeah of commitment and effort you you don't proceed the the current of the law takes you from being you know run of the mill yeah run of the mill good to being really great because you've maintained a position which is understandable and is clearly presented and that you 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 are plainly prepared i think what drove me into the profession besides watching stuff on television was i thought i would treat myself to a case at the old bailey so i trooped along i didn't know anything about it at all yeah. it was a matter the defendant was a man called roberts who'd killed a police officer in shepherd's bush and i think uh, the, the attorney of the day attorney general was prosecuting so it was a sort of high profile mm-hmm. but i i was so appalled by the preparation the fact the judge had to keep pulling the advocates up because they got the wrong exhibit numbers or whatever. And it, it sort of sounds fairly petty, but I thought, you know, this doesn't look like a well-oiled machine really knowing what, what they're doing. And I thought, I, I could do better than this. I think I could do better than this. So yeah. I think it's, it is about, and I've, I certainly believe that you do have to do the preparation very carefully. Mm-hmm. And and the, the, the careful advocate, the caring advocate, so you're doing two things is um eye for detail but also you've got an eye on a bigger horizon what is this case really all about what are the emotions that are underneath it what are the objectives so you have to have two things at one and the same time you have to be able to as it were bridge your Mm -hmm. ability to dissemble detail and remember detail and at the same time fit that detail into a much bigger picture so you're able to paint a bigger picture as to how it all fits in and why it's important yeah how do you deal with failure and can you think of any failures that have later set you up for success um well no no i can't think of anything that set me up for success i think there are cases which I wish I'd won, obviously. And one of them was the trial of Barry George in the first place, where, I mean, eventually we got the, the right result. But, yeah. I, 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 you know, those are cases where I question seriously so what's gone wrong. So it's really employing what I said before. I don't, I don't necessarily immediately say it's a failure because mm-hmm. I think you've got to be kind to yourself and realise yeah. that there are... You know, there are times you're going to get things wrong, but don't beat yourself up about it because 
provided you've done the preparation and you've worked as hard as you can do. That's the most that can be expected. So I'm not going to go around, uh, you know, with a black book with loads of failures in it. No. So, or in my mind, that is. So I don't, I don't look at it that way. I look at it the other way, which is, I've done the best I can, and however, that may not be good enough. And next time, maybe I've got to do something slightly differently, or look at something that's slightly differently. So each case actually is providing you with the momentum for the next one, because you're you are learning. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a bit of a it's a trite aphorism of life isn't it the uh, we're all on a learning curve and yeah. uh, we are uh, and you never end but you'll never get to the end of it because there's too much i mean once you start thinking which i do regularly about the universe everything that's out there and it, it, and i did astronomy at university and i i kind of that opened my mind completely you know we are but a pinprick in time and in the mass we are but a pinprick so i'm not going to be able to reach the end of that learning curve yeah but what is it about the job that motivates you you the most what why oh yeah i think the reason i went in and the reason i'm still here should have really retired some people will say really uh, some years ago but i tried i couldn't really succeed but uh, it is the the possibility. This was the Defenders series on the American series on television. Yeah. What it showed you was that you have an entity you can participate in, yeah. that you can contribute to, you know, a case, a trial, whatever, yeah. and that you can influence the outcome within the case itself and beyond if it leads to, for example, a change in the system, a change in the legislation, a change in the protocols. So you have an opportunity. It's a privileged opportunity, which I treasured from the beginning. But, you know, people will come and say, well, what do you think about this? And if I've got a view that is, you know, worth presenting, I'll try and do that. So the job has given me, I suppose, in a way, a platform to be able to articulate the needs of others. And that's, you know, that's the biggest reward. Is I wouldn't dream of comparing myself to a nurse on the front line, but I kind of feel, you know, they do an amazing job with bigger risks even than I take. And that's what I feel. I'm a nurse on the front line. Well, that was Mr. Michael Mansfield QC. What a brilliant guest he was. If you have any questions for Michael, you can forward those to me. He's not on social media, but he's agreed to answer any questions you may have. Please check out the website, keepournhspublic.com. I will post a link to that. If you've enjoyed the show, please share on social media. Please spread the word. Every little helps. Thank you.